welcome to the C3 Camden podcast. For more information about our church, please visit www.c3camden.church. We are so thrilled that you're listening today and we hope you enjoy the message. Good afternoon. Oh, I can't see a thing. I need some house lights. We'll get some house lights in a minute. I can't see a thing. Welcome to those online as well. Yes, there are many of you who are sick and have been sick and I've been saying in the last couple of weeks that I've been pastoring a long time and I do not ever remember a winter like this and I keep thinking it's, it's not even the end of June yet. So heart goes out to so many of you who are unwell, believing that, you know, maybe we just get it over and done with, kill every virus and move on, hey? So thank you to everybody that is still engaging with us. We're going to get right to work because, my goodness, it's 4.39. So uh, we're going to get straight into the Word. But Pastor Edwina, just for a change, you took my words out of my mouth last week. I texted her. I was sitting in my car down in Wollongong listening to the message live, and I was just um, so impacted and challenged by that message. And I figured, hey, if Ali can challenge us, that gives the pastor permission to challenge us a little bit too. Is that all right? So uh, this message today is kind of like a part two installment. And I'm even going to read some of the same scriptures that Ali preached last week. I know she said we're going to go on in the book of Acts, and that was the original plan. But as we've sought the Lord, I really felt that I wanted to spend some time digging more into how we as Christians and those who claim to follow Jesus uh, can be uh, adequate responders to uh, the world around us in an era era when uh, persecution of those who hold Christian values is on the rise, I believe. How do, we, how do we do this well? How do we manage that persecution well? And so I've entitled today's message, Persecution and the Culture Wars. Persecution and the Culture Wars. Has anyone ever heard the term culture wars before? How about cancel culture? Anyone heard that word before? I'm going to talk about what that is in a minute. I mean, if I had the youth in here today, they're out doing their own thing. If I had the youth in here, believe me, the youth understand cancel culture. They live with this stuff every day. And so I guess the subtitle of this message, if you, if you think about where I'm going with this, is what can the persecution of the early church, the first century church, and the persecution of the first century Christians teach us and we can learn between the way the early Christians dealt with persecution and the way that Jesus would have us deal with the persecution that many of us face today. Does that make sense? It's kind of where I'm going over these next however many minutes I've got, which isn't many. But I'm going to go there, and um, I'm well aware that uh, in, in a message like this, I stand to upset everyone. And there are people who go, oh, the pastor's gone all woke. The pastor's become a communist. And then there'll be other people who will think the pastor's just a conservative bigot. So somewhere in the middle, I'm going to thread a needle. Is that all right? Going to try and thread a needle. And regardless of where you sit on this, my intention is that uh, hopefully, as, your, as, as a part of your leadership team, I can uh, instruct you, inform you about what the way I believe Jesus would have his people respond to persecution. Because I do believe that there is a lot of stuff around how we should respond that isn't focused on the Scriptures. It sounds good. It's, it makes sense if you take it at face value. But if you compare it with what Jesus would say, it doesn't add up. I don't think we can go wrong if we look at how Jesus and his disciples dealt with it. If we do that, I believe we'll be on sound footing. Now, I know you're going to go quiet at different points during this message, and I've preached this message in a couple of settings already, and I've realised that it's just that you're deeply thinking about what I'm saying 
It could be that you're staring at me with daggers I can't see in the dim light because you don't like what I'm saying. But bear with me. I want to challenge you and I want you to think through the implications of what I share with you. I've got numbers, a, a, fair, a fair amount of notes here, but I'm even aware that when I say things like the words cancel culture or, or culture wars, that immediately for many of us, that, um, that stirs up some emotion. It stirs up some, uh, some predisposition because we all have their kind of um, predetermined definitions of what those things mean. I was in one of uh, preaching this in Thoreau last weekend and I asked people if anyone had heard of cancel culture. One of the guys in the front row said, oh, I've never heard of that before. And I said, that's because you're too nice. No one wants to cancel you. But believe me, if you, if you want to stand for something, you're going to get cancelled sooner or later. So I'm going to talk through some of the, the, uh, the, impl- the definitions that I'm using for these terms so that at least you'll know where I'm coming from. And, uh, and then... Hopefully, uh, that'll give you some perspective for where I'm going with these terms, cancel culture and culture wars and so on. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to put a little caveat in here right now, and that is this. I realise that when we start talking about issues like this, it can very easily become politicised. It could very easily become a political issue with strong standards. I want to let you know that as a C3 pastor, I was talking to Pastor Edwin about this, I've actually signed a contract that says I won't politicise the pulpit. That's one of the things that we do in our movement. We do not politicise. So I'm not going to stand here and tell you a political view on anything. I hope I had, had a gentleman in one of our other locations ring me up before the election and say, Pastor, I don't know who to vote for. Who should I vote for? And I thought, well, thanks very much. No pressure. But first of all, I said... to this gentleman, I said, look, even if I wanted to share, I have a political perspective, but even if I wanted to share, my responsibility is to teach you God's word. And then hopefully through that, you'll make some decisions about what your perspective is with regard to political matters. Does that make sense? My job's not to tell people what to do. And uh, I won't do that. Even Jesus himself um, had among his disciples, if you will put it in the modern context, he had people from the far left and the far right among his group of disciples. He had people who would be right down the left and he had people who would be way at the right, zealots and, and, and people who were in bed with the government, the whole perspective. Jesus had diverse opinions even among his disciples. In fact, I would say here that a mark of unity should be that Christians can unite around Jesus despite differences of opinions about things like this. That we can find a way to unite around a person not around a different perspective on a political view. It's not my place to do that. Um, and I believe that, in fact, it's not a mark of, of Christianity. And I'm saying this because some of you might have not experienced this. Some of you probably have things on your social media feed that makes you think that all Christians have one perspective or another when it comes to politics. A lot of that has to do with kind of what you have coming through your feed on social media or Facebook or whatever. And I would say to that, Come back to the Scriptures all the time. Keep coming back to Jesus. Don't just accept everything because it's coming from someone who claims to be a Christian. doesn't mean you have to agree with them in order to live in unity with them. The Apostle Paul's desire for his church was that people could come from all spectrums of life, unite together around Jesus from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different political backgrounds and beliefs, and they could come together and they could form a new polis. A polis means a city or a community. They could form a new community, which was different to the communities out in the world. It was so radically different that it became attractive to people out there because they could say, How can you guys all get on with each other so well? I want that. 
That was his desire. That, in fact, he says in Ephesians that that unity would be such a powerful demonstration that it would demonstrate to the powers and the principalities and the demonic forces in a radical way the manifold wisdom of God. That the demonic forces could look at the church and their unity, its unity, and say, wow, that's different. We talk a lot about spiritual... That's, that's, that's spiritual warfare when we can just say, hey, I don't agree with you on that, but I dignify you in your right to have that perspective. Let's focus on Jesus. That's what we're about. And I believe that's what we can do in this. Thank you. I feel encouraged already. Thank you. Who was that shouting? It was dangerous though, because I might go over time, but that's all right. So it's okay to have different perspectives. I'm not here to politicize the pulpit. I'm going to come back to what Jesus would say. I'd also say, also say there's a precedent in Jesus. And some of you have heard me say this before. Jesus himself was not only one, was some disciples, some Pharisees who came to him and said, teacher, tell us, should we be paying taxes to that ruling oppressive power that's dominating us, that's invaded us, those Romans that don't even belong here? Should we be paying taxes to those? And Jesus says, no, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Just think about the implications of that for a minute in terms of our modern complex where we say, oh, we're so oppressed. Jesus is instructing his followers to pay taxes to a ruling. Let that hang there for a minute. That's a thought just on itself. Engage what the implications of that might mean for how we're to conduct ourselves in a world that we're complaining is against us. Okay, that's number one. The second political statement that Jesus made was just before he died. And Pontius Pilate brought him, he stood before Pontius Pilate because he was being accused of being a political ruler. Claiming, they said, you, you claim to be the king of the Jews. And to claim that you were the king of the Jews is to set yourself up. They saw that as setting himself up in direct opposition to the Roman government. So Pontius Pilate does what he would have to do in that environment as the uh, representative of the Roman government. He says, I want to know, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus says, yes, I am a king. It's actually ultimately why he got crucified <laughs> when it comes to it. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews, was written above his head. That's why he got crucified. But, so he makes a political statement. But when you dig into what he was saying, he goes on and says, but I want to tell you something about my kingdom. My kingdom is not a political power like the political power of Rome. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from a different place. My kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. My kingdom does not stand opposed diametrically or polarizing against anything or everything about this kingdom. My kingdom is totally separate. And I'm going to build a church which represents a different kingdom with different values. And that will be the demonstration to the world around that there is life and hope and light in Christ. So there are two political statements that Jesus made, very different to what we see in, in the world today. What else have I got in my notes here? Some of it I've probably already said. I know and I, I said I know and follow politics as much as the next person, but once again, that's not my role. My role is to teach you, disciple you, support you and our church to be the best representation of Jesus that we can be. If we politicize the pulpit, if we politicize our church, ultimately we will fail. And sadly, I'm seeing this in lots of Western countries and lots of churches right now. It's falling down. All sides of politics have different socio, different economic perspectives on different issues. Some are in line with godly values and some aren't. Don't be fooled into thinking that just one side or other is 100% God. There is plenty of perspectives that are for and against God on all perspectives because we are human. You can't, not to say you can't be a Christian and have a political view. There are 
good godly people on all sides of the political spectrum, Christians in all parts of political, all parties. It's love our perspective or our view at the cost of all others. When we do that, we miss out on some good and some other things that people might have to say that might be different to us. You with me? Okay, 451, goodness me. I'm going to define culture war for you, if you don't know, and then I'm going to define the word cancel. Wikipedia's definition of culture war is this. A culture war is a cultural conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, their beliefs, and their practices. It's commonly refers to a topic of which there is a general society. I haven't just asked the young millennials and the high schoolers. They know all about it. The, terms used to describe, the term is used to describe hot-button issues of contemporary politics, such as wedge issues, such as abortion, homosexuality, transgender rights, pornography, multiculturalism, racism, and other conflicts that are based on values, morality, and lifestyle. So that is a definition of the culture wars. It's a, it's, a, it's a war that takes place between people who have deeply held different value and societal perspectives on life. And it's okay to have those values. I actually believe that God has given every human being the dignity of free will. And so it's okay to have deeply held values, as long as we're prepared to keep, I want to encourage you to keep being wrestling with them. Don't just hold to them dogmatically. Put them out regularly for, uh, for examination to see if what you believe is true. Keep doing that, otherwise you'll just dig yourself further into one perspective. But it's okay to have values. I actually believe that we as Christians can hold values and not engage in culture war. Because culture war is not a religious problem. Culture war is not a political problem. Culture war is a human problem. It's to do with our nature. I'm going to show you why in a minute. And if I forget, someone yell out, hey, Rowan, remind us why culture war is a human problem, okay? I'm going to come back to that. So that's culture war. Now, cancel culture, um, you may not know this. I did not know this until I was preparing this message. Cancel culture was, it's two words, but it was the Australian Macquarie Dictionary's words of the year. For t- did you know that, Pastor Edwin? In 2019, superseded by unprecedented, obviously, for obvious reasons. But, but in 2019, cancel culture was the word of the year. I did not know that. So whether you think it's a big deal or not, the fact that the Macquarie Dictionary defined it that way should mean that we should sit up and take notice, that this is something that is making, this is a big deal in the world that we are called to live in. And if we want to be relevant and bring good, good, God's good news to the world, we better know that this is the talk, okay? If nothing else, it's just being, being understanding the world we live in so we can bring truth to it. So this article says, the dictionary's entry for cancelled culture in 2019, the Australian Macquarie Dictionary defines it as, quote, the attitudes within a community which call for or bring about the withdrawal or support of a public figure. In a way, it's an attempt to wipe them out as punishment, said Victoria Morgan, the senior editor of Macquarie Dictionary. For instance, if you're a musician, it could be taking off your music off a streaming service or a radio station. All the young ones out there, they already know. There are lots of them. This happened to them. The term is also called call-out culture or outrage culture. Sometimes it involves intense criticism for things that celebrities have said or done in the past, such as cancel or often forced to apologise or avoid having their, their careers harmed. Usually it's a comment or something that is perceived as unacceptable by the majority view. So if we say something and we hold to a value and bring it out in a way that is different to the majority... Hey, being cancelled, you're in pretty good company because Jesus was cancelled. 
In fact, there was one time where Jesus, and he wasn't cancelled by the world, actually. He was cancelled by the religious people of the church. There was one time where they said, this man, he welcomes sinners and let's cancel him. Doesn't say that, but they would have said that in the first century if cancel culture was the word of the first century and not the word of the 21st century. But that's essentially what they did. But it got me to thinking, it's not just a religious problem. It's a human problem because the cancelling, much of the cancelling today is being done by a predominant worldview, which is a certain worldview perspective. But it was the religious conservatives that were trying to cancel Jesus. So whether it's right, left, religious, whatever, humanity, humans have an inbuilt, innate uh, response to cancel out or f- refuse to listen to people who disagree with us. And of course, if there's enough people with one perspective and it becomes a majority, they will cancel the minority. And here's the deal, friends. We're moving into a time as Christians where many of us will feel like our views are cancelled. But it would be good for us to know that for a long, long time, Christians have cancelled other people's views. And doesn't make it right or wrong. It's a human problem. Jesus allowed himself to be cancelled. He didn't defend himself as it lamb before its shearers was silent, Isaiah says, so he did not open his mouth. When he was brought before the Sanhedrin, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't fight for his rights. I was reflecting on this message this morning and chatting with someone, and I got this, I hope I can articulate it well, because I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking it through. But one of the gentlemen in Picton was saying how he had someone say to him, oh, you're going off to church to, you know, believe that, you believe that book, it's all about the fairies, don't you? And he was saying, you know, oh, you like a good debate? He said, I like a good debate. And he does. He's, he's a bit of a philosophical mind and he's a lovely guy. And he said, I like a good debate. And he said, oh, I'd just like to get into a debate. And I said, hang on a sec, let's just pull back for a minute. Do you think that you getting into a debate with someone who says that is going to bring about the result you want? And let's think about it for a minute. It's probably not. So I said, let's just reflect on what's going on inside us. Because this might happen. Someone might say to you, oh, you don't really believe that perspective about sexuality, do you? Or you don't really hold to that truth about the church. Or what about you Christians and the way you've done this or you've done that? Just take a moment in that moment to center yourself and say, what am I feeling right now? I suspect for most of us, this is what's going on inside us very quickly. First of all, it feels like an attack on what we believe or what we hold as truth, the values that we hold. And in one sense, it is. It's an attack on us, on those values. We might in a fleeting moment think, I have a responsibility. I'm conflicted because I have a responsibility before Jesus to speak up for what I believe is true. And then you think, how do I do that? Oh, I have to do that. So that might be one perspective. I might feel uh, like this is a fence inside of me. And then because it's an attack on what I believe, attacking me. And therefore, human nature, regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, outside of the empowering and love of Christ motivating us, human nature will then get defensive. And I feel defense, you know, you, you guys that are married know this, fans, you want to get defensive, right? Anyone else know what I'm talking about or is it just, just the pastor? Okay. So I want to get defensive at that point and stand up and fight for my rights and say, ah, the problem is that when we do that, we've engaged in the culture war, whether that's a marital war or whatever, we've engaged in the culture war. But friends, behind that comment, about fairies and the Bible and all that. There is a story. There is an experience that that person has had. And if for a moment we can just step back from feeling like we have to defend ourselves or or Jesus, you know, Jesus doesn't need us to defend him. (laughs) You know, if we could, if Jesus was silent when he had every opportunity to speak up, maybe maybe some silence is good now and then. 
behind that, if we could just go to that person and say, oh, tell me, why do you believe that? You know, and ask some questions and actually engage in them. Maybe you'll be able to get a little bit behind this person's story and their experience. And maybe there might be some things that you could even apologize for on behalf of other Christians. And it might take three or four or five or ten conversations, but maybe just maybe somewhere down the track, once they know that you're not fighting against them, you're not at war with them, maybe they'll say, that you'll have enough, earned enough respect with them that they might turn around and say, hey, could you tell me why you believe that the Bible is true? Could you tell me why you hold that value about sexuality or about whatever it is? Because maybe you've earned the right by actually showing interest in people. And I think that's what, oh, thank you. I thought that was just worth saying. It's a human problem. Let's not add to the culture war. I believe there is a way to do this that doesn't add to it as well. What else have we got in here? It's a human problem. Minorities tend to be persecuted by the masses, and so we are fast becoming the minority. And, and look, I'm all for revival, breaking out in a nation and things turning around, but if it goes on its current trajectory, in the next 10 years, trajectory, the next 10 years, it's very likely that the Christian worldview will be held, some aspects of the Christian worldview will be held in a very strong minority view. So I think we can learn from the first century Christians because that's how they were. How did they handle persecution? Here's some common narratives that you might have heard. Here's some common narratives that might come across your social feed. You might have other Christians that tell you this. Maybe you've even thought these things yourself. I want to spend a moment unpacking some of these narratives, and then we'll close with some scripture. Narrative number one, the world is getting darker and more evil than it's ever been. It's the end times, the signs of the times. Can you believe how dark the world is? It's a sign that Jesus is coming back. Well, Jesus may be coming back, but it's not related to the fact of world history. It would tell you that the level of morality, in, especially in the Western world, in the last 150 years, has been more instructed, informed by Judeo-Christian ethics than at any other time in history. The right for, to fight for the dignity of free will the right to elevate people. You take your average person, Christian or not, and you look at them and you say, hey, how do you think we should treat poor people? More than ever before, people will go, we need to do something time that we've ever lived in. The first century Roman world was much darker. The Corinthian church that Paul was writing to, it was not uncommon. In fact, it was normal, commonly accepted, that there were temple prostitutes all over the place. People would have sex on the streets, all kinds of stuff in the Corinthian world. Don't talk to me about how dark things are now. And into that, Paul tells his Christians to live a life of purity and love and let people see it on you. That's narrative number one. The world is getting darker. The second one is the government is evil. I even had someone during, um, during the pandemic, uh, a Christian man who's no longer in our church, not, he wasn't in this church anyway, said, wrote, on, wrote on my Facebook page. I talk about offence. I took offence at this, but I was very polite. He said, Scott Morrison is the devil. And uh, so I had to uh, politely ask him to remove that off my Facebook page and put it on his own if he wanted to. But, but I did that very politely and engaging in, in conversation with him. But the government is not evil. There might be some values. The government's under the principalities and powers of the world, but we're in a democracy, for goodness sake. There are other countries around the world where the governments are evil. Let's focus on helping them. <laughs> be grateful that we live in a democracy. Christianity is under threat. My Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And there are damning reports coming out week after week about failures in the church. 
Sadly so. And I've had people say, quit focusing on the failures because you are giving the church a bad name in the eyes of the world. Do you think maybe the bad behaviours are the things that are giving the church a bad name in the eyes of the world? Other people say, but yeah, but the church has done lots of good things. Well, why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be yes and? Yes, the church has done lots of good things, and the church has done some things that are inappropriate. Leaders have done some things that are inappropriate. Let's call out those things. It doesn't mean that just because we're calling out those things that everything the church does is wrong. In fact, one of the most empowering things we Christians could say to the world is, yes, it's, I'm sorry that the church has made some decisions like that. I'm sorry that those pastors have, have, have betrayed uh, the, your expectations. Those, church, those pastors, those people, all of us, we're all broken. We're, we're, we're trying to make ends meet. We're trying to make it, work, make it work. We have a heart as a church to help people, but we're going to mess it up. We're sorry. That can build trust. That can build, rebuild trust with our world. We've got some work to do. Long before we can stand up for rights, we've got to undo some damage. And that's okay. It can be both at the same time. This is a big one. We need to fight for our freedoms. I am getting increasingly frustrated. I'm going to get a bit frustrated for a moment. Is that okay? I'm getting frustrated about the overwhelming amount of battle terminology that I'm hearing among Christians at the moment. We have to fight for this and we have to fight for that. And we've got to, we're in the culture. He doesn't. I'm going to show you in just a moment. And I was at a, I was at a prayer breakfast. It wasn't in Camden because all the Camden area Christians are just perfect. But I was, in, I was in a prayer breakfast in another area. And the good, godly Christian people. But the narrative that came out of this prayer breakfast at the end, the amount of, I came away thinking, oh, Lord, help us. Good people who aren't just thinking through this, just thinking it's all about fighting, fighting, fighting. We've got to fight for our rights. We've got to fight for our kids. We've got to fight, 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 fight. Jesus waged a war of giving up his life. I think there's a way to do this. So let's just, when things come across your feet, even people and voices and organisations that claim to be Christian, I just want to, try, as your pastor, just don't accept it. Think about it. Run it through the lens of Jesus. Hey, just because that person said that and they seem well-respected, does that mean it's what Jesus would say? Let me show you some things that Jesus would say. When we start to examine the early church and how they responded to persecution, how they responded to a broken world that didn't get them, didn't agree with them, didn't like them and persecuted them, you'd be amazed how little battle language we see. We don't see battle language. We see people giving up their lives. We see the Roman Empire being overturned by people not fighting for their rights, but giving up their lives. And they took their responses from Jesus' teaching. He said things like this, really, really strange out-of-the-box things like, blessed are the humble, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted and mocked for doing right. He said, you are the light of the world. Don't, don't hide your light under a basket. Don't, don't bunker down and hide from a wicked world. See, the prevailing worldview that they had was that if that the Jews had in the time of Jesus was that if you touched a sinful person, if you got near a sick person, a diseased person, spiritually or physically, that somehow that disease, that sickness, that darkness would get on you. And so there's this famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, Jesus talks about the priest and the Levite. They see a man beaten and bruised and battered, and they walk across the other side of the road to get away from him. 
Now, if you tell the average person in our 21st century society that story, regardless of whether they're Christian or not, they will say, how dare they do that? How dare they leave that person? Well, that should tell us something about the level of morality in our society. That even in our society, among non-Christians, they understand that walking around someone who's hurting is not the right thing to do. Why do they have that morality, Christian or otherwise? Because Christians have taught them that morality. But in the time of Jesus, it was very different. Because they had this mentality that if they got near a sick person or a diseased person, that sin or disease would get on them. That's, so according to their understanding, the Levite and that worldview comes Jesus of Nazareth hugging lepers, touching sinners, embracing the broken and the hurting. Because he understood something. Darkness couldn't get on him. Like we've been singing, light got on darkness. His light his followers, us to do the same thing. Go into dark places. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Get out there. Shine your light. Let others see your good deeds that they may praise. Who? Your Father in heaven. We do this as we live out the life of Christ. If you love only those who love you back. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Been listening to, I've been watching a, um, a conversation online between some, reading some blogs back and forward between some different Christian perspectives on this. And Pastor Tim Keller, who's well known to many people, I have a lot of respect for Tim Keller, he was, uh, he was kind of, he wrote an article where he was, was kind of disappointed that Christians have moved towards this culture warring effect. And he said, hey, love and warmth and winsomeness has always been the way Christians have reached the world. Show love and compassion and kindness. That's the way it's always worked. And so people started to push back on that and say, that might have worked before, but it doesn't work anymore. Because now everyone's against us, so we have to take a different worldview. We need to fight back. And in Tim Keller's article, or one of the articles that come on afterwards, it quoted Jesus, this very passage, Jesus says, love your enemies. And... Uh, you know, the scriptures say, love your enemies. And this person who was pushing back on Pastor Tim Keller actually said in this article, sure, it's true that Jesus said, love your enemies, but we still need to realise that they are our enemies. Now, it's not a complicated question. Out of the word love and enemies, which is the one that Jesus was most focused on? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And it, Yeah, but they have to focus on the enemy component. No, Jesus is saying, you love even your enemies. And they're not your enemies because you make them your enemy. Even if they make them your, make us their enemy, we still command to love them. Let's be those kind of people. We're going to finish. We'll get the guys to come back. Just a couple of guys are going to come back and I'm just going to wrap it up now. Uh, I'm going to pull out a few chapter four. I had a few other verses, but I'm not going to go there today. And Ali did a great job with this prayer last week. This prayer comes at the end of Acts 4, which was the first persecution, the first reference at least to persecution. Peter and John had been persecuted for uh, preaching about Jesus. In fact, they had been persecuted because people were following them and they were called before the religious leaders and they were persecuted. And they were commanded not to preach. And in fact, I love what Peter said. He said, rulers and uh, let me find it because it's in my notes here. He said in verse 9, you don't have to put it up. He says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said, Rulers and elders of the people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Friends, are we being persecuted today because we've done good things? 
Is the persecution coming because we've shown kindness? Hey, that's the kind of persecution I want to be persecuted for. If I'm going to show kindness and compassion and love to people who aren't going to like that, that's okay. So let's just question, what is the reason? What are we being persecuted for? Are we being persecuted for kindness or are we being persecuted for being angry and bitter? And there was genuine persecution, not just from the religious leaders, but from the government authorities and, and all kinds of people. And in this prayer, let's all stand. I want to close in this. I want you to reflect on these words. Is there someone in your world that you feel persecuted by? Maybe there's some issue that you feel particularly passionate about. And you might want to think, begin to think about how do you respond to that person or how should you respond to that issue in a way that represents God's heart. So it says, as soon as Peter and John were freed, verse 23, they returned to the other believers and they told them what the leading priest had said, which was this, quit preaching in the name of Jesus. When they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. They didn't get on Twitter and complain about how bad the world was. They didn't go to the world with a problem. They went to God with a problem. They lifted their voices to God because they knew that Twitter and Instagram weren't going to solve the problem. They knew that Jesus could be their answer. They lifted their hands and they said, Oh, sovereign Lord, you're the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David. And then he quotes Psalm 2. Why do the nations, why are the nations so angry with you? Why do they waste their time in futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. Rulers gather against the Lord and against His Messiah. Direct quote from the Psalms. They pulled out that and said, that's what we feel is happening to us right now. We feel like the world is gathering against God and Jesus. We feel that way. We're His followers. We feel persecuted. In fact, they said it happened right here in this city. The fulfilment of that Psalm, we saw that. Herod Antipas, who represents the Jewish leadership. The Pontius Pilate, who represents the Roman authority government. And the Gentiles, everybody else, and even the, the, Jesus' own people, the people of Israel, they were all united against Jesus. Everyone was against Jesus. Everyone is against us. We feel like everyone is against us right now, against your holy servant whom you anointed. Man, this verse 28 could help a few of us. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. I wonder if some of this persecution that's happening right now Rather than fighting it, maybe God's using it to weed out some nonsense and some mess that needs to come out of the church because we haven't represented Him well. Maybe a bit of persecution is not a bad thing. It's cause of it is actually happening ahead of time. Verse 29, And now, O Lord, listen to their threats and destroy every one of them that's threatening us. It doesn't say that, does it? And give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your world. Can you notice how much how little them language is in this and how much us language. Sure, this might be happening and the people out there might be doing that. But rather than praying against them, they pray the Holy Spirit would empower them that they could keep living the gospel life, that they could keep showing kindness, they could keep reaching out with love at the good news and the hope of Christ. They said, stretch out your hand with healing power and that many miraculous signs they were was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and preached the Word of God. And if you go on and read what happened afterwards, you think, well, what does that preaching look like? Well, it looks like a church united, sharing possessions and gathering together in community and loving one another. That's how they preached. 
wasn't getting out the megaphones and shouting at people. It was demonstrating God's love, telling people, hey, you know what? Your life might be a mess right now, but I know one who can help you. Can I pray for you? Can I bring healing and life to you? Friends, I believe that's the kind of church that we are called to be. How do we handle the culture wars? We don't fight back. We give up. I wonder if you could just close your eyes. I'm over time. Sorry about that. Just blame Sonia. She got me started. Is this okay? I've got to stop saying that. Actually, someone said to me the other day, you say that and you don't give me an answer if it's not okay. So that's true. It's, if it's not okay, that's fine. A lot of time on it. And I know that it's the heart of Pastor Edwina as well. But at the same time, I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to think through the implications of this so that it becomes part of who you are. And if you don't agree, hey, you can still live in unity with us. That's what it's about. Lord, I pray that for every person that's gathered here today, that there would be food for thought in this, whether we agree or not. I know that a heart of every person here is that they would represent you well. Thank you, gracious God, that you found us in our mess. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us right when we were so far from you. Lord, may we never lose sight of how good you've been to us, that we could then show that goodness to others. Help us with that, Lord. Friends, if you don't know Jesus, I want you to begin to think about that. He's, he's inviting you into his life. There's nothing that you could have done or have done that could separate you from his love. We would love to help you in that journey. If you want to know more about Jesus, just come and chat with me after the service. I'll be happy to, to work with you and talk to you about this Jesus who loves you no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. There's nothing that has happened that could separate you from his love. Friends, if you're watching online, send us a direct message. We would love to connect with you. You can connect with us with it via our website as well, c3camden.church. Just fill out a contact form on there. We'd love to get in touch with you and help you to meet this beautiful Jesus who cares for you and loves you so much. For the rest of us, let's go out into the world and be salt and light. Let's go and shine our light and love of Christ into a world that needs His love and His hope. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from our church. We pray that you feel empowered by what you've heard today. We hope that you can stay connected by following us online. You can find us at C3 Camden on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube or visit our website at www.c3camden.church. You're always with-